Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you have your Bibles. Or scroll there. And make sure you have a handout. This is our second to last book in the wisdom literature, poetry and wisdom literature section of the Old Testament. And uh, the wisdom books, as we go through them, do not get any easier. Ecclesiastes is quite a, uh, quite a unique book in the Old Testament, and so I'll open it up uh, again, as I often do, to ask you, what is, give us some insight into what Ecclesiastes is about, what are some things that are unique to this book, and is there some wisdom that you have gained from the book of Ecclesiastes that you can share with us as we start this journey? I think that's a really helpful uh, approach, actually, to reading the book, is realizing this is a tension uh, that the, the author is wanting us to step into and to feel the tension. And there's a lot of cognitive uh, and heart tension in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, you're right. I've always heard that it was written by Solomon, and it's kind of a response to the poor choices that he made mm. and him realizing mm. the mm-hmm. meaninglessness of the things he pursued other than God. Mm. Mm-hmm. But there appears to be some question about that. <laughs> yeah. I think that um, that would be a great reading if, if that's true. <laughs> Seriously, I, I mean, we're, we're not going to land on anywhere confident on the authorship today. Yes. I've always felt like Ecclesiastes is kind of like a applied Job in a way. Mm. Like Job asks God questions like, "Why am I here? Do you judge wrongdoers the way you seem to be judging good doers?" And Ecclesiastes is like, "I'm living my everyday life and it seems pointless. I'm going to ask these questions. I'm going to kind of ask these questions to God, but kind of it sometimes feels like He's just ranting." Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they absolutely do go together. A lot of um, Christian financial counselors will use uh, some quotes from Ecclesiastes. Um, divide your divide your investments, divide your your monies, whatever, to seven or to eight, because you never know what calamity might befall. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anybody know the famous passage in chapter 3? For everything there is a season. Yes. Um, you know, this, this passage is often misunderstood to just say, well... At every point in your life, you're going to need to do these things. Um, But what it's really showing us is who's in control. And that there is an appointed season by God uh, for these things. And sometimes that means submission on our part uh, to what's going on. Uh, Anyway, hopefully we'll we'll get to that. Uh, We will get to that here on the right side of the page. 
Ecclesiastes argues against simplistic explanations for how things work in the world. This is getting back to what Eric said at the beginning. Uh, And it rejects the suggestion that God's actions in the world are wholly predictable. We saw this with Job too. Uh, We we saw the fact that uh, you can't you can't take these um, well with with Proverbs as as well. You you can't take these principles and these concepts and say they are always universally true uh, in this life. Uh, They are uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is inviting you to wrestle with the fact that. Good people don't always get good, and wicked people don't always get judgment. Right? And, and so, what's the point then? Is really kind of the, it's the launch pad into that question of what's the point of this if we can't predict or make sense of much of it? Uh, the, the person who speaks, you see in Ecclesiastes 1 1, the words of the preacher, you can read your footnotes there. It says the convener or the collector. The Hebrew word is kohelet. Uh, and so it's translated throughout Ecclesiastes. So uh, Kohelet or preacher or assembler. Assembler is really the most specific name, but we don't really have a term for that, uh, is the name of the wisdom giver. There are two voices throughout the book. There is Kohelet and there is the narrator slash potentially editor. Uh, so it seems verse chapter 1 verse 12 is when the preacher begins. And verses 1 through 11 are kind of a prologue written by a narrator. Verses 2 through 11 could also be Kohelet, um, but it seems to have been introduced by the narrator who then concludes at the end of the book. So flip over to the end of the book, and you see in chapter 12, verse 9 begins the conclusion, the epilogue, if you will. So the, the person who's taking the words of Kohelet and compiling them into the book of Ecclesiastes uh, switches to the third person here in verse 9. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. I think let's go ahead and read the, the rest of these verses here, because it seems like whoever the, the narrator is who has brought all this into the, together into the book of Ecclesiastes cares deeply about, as you see in verse 12, his son receiving wisdom, perhaps as his son is growing up into a man. He wants to help him understand godly wisdom. So uh, verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. (laughs) Amen, says the PhD. (laughs) The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This narrator is summarizing this this text of tension that, that we will uh, we'll dive into here very briefly, or uh, very shortly, and saying even wisdom itself and the pursuit of philosophy and all these ideas can become a burdensome, fruitless task. And so he summarizes it briefly there in the last two verses. Here's the end of the matter. We've heard everything. It's this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
That's the summary. That's the conclusion. That's what the, the wisdom of Kohelet and the narrator together have, have concluded. Um, this is the point. Fear God and obey his commands. Uh, go ahead. How much did that verse factor into um, the catechism? <laughs> yeah, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I don't know how much it factored into that. Um, we also are like one of the questions right after that is what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. Uh, that may perhaps be uh, linked into this, um, but that may also, as as you can tell from the structure of the catechism, that may be more directly tied to the Ten Commandments because it ends up breaking those down extensively. Um, it's but it's the same concept. It is, it is the, the biblical Old Testament concept. Um, the preacher appears to be speaking in a way calculated to bring us into his existential quagmire. That's how uh, Matt Bradley puts it. These big life questions, existential crisis, as some people call it. Um, he wants us to feel that tension, what's going on in the world. Uh, some believe Kohlet is Solomon, some do not. Uh, if you look at one one, it sounds a lot like Solomon, uh, and it and it may be uh, because it's the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Of course, son of David could refer to any of his sons uh, as they used that title back in the Old Testament. Uh, so we do know it was written by one of David's descendants, who was king in Jerusalem, uh, and and so and especially when you start into the first couple chapters, chapters one and two. It, the approach seems to be very much like Solomon would approach things. It, it sounds like someone who has great wisdom and great wealth and has asked these deep questions and who has received um, wisdom from God. And, and so it very well may be uh, Solomon, but there are some other things that make it sound not a whole lot like Solomon, um, such as chapter 1, verse 16. If you flip over there and say, I have said in, or I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Okay, there were two over Jerusalem before you. Um, yeah, it could be. He could be referring to Saul and to David. Uh, there's, it's not likely that he was referring to the Jebusites who reigned before Saul and David. Um, but maybe, maybe he is referring to that. Uh, it's, it's, it, it is possible. It would just be an awkward way to express it. Uh, chapters uh, chapter 4 and 5 and 10, uh, they speak down about the role of the king. And perhaps it could be, from your perspective, um, Solomon, after he has seen his folly and learned from it and grown from it, he can look back and say, all right, well, even the kings are, can't, can't you know, uphold justice as we want them to. Um, so it doesn't honestly really matter um, when, you, when you get into this, because we know this is God's inspired wisdom. And we know that this has, has been passed to us as it is uh, for our instruction. Uh, it does seem to have this frame setting, as I mentioned. So uh, verses 1 through 11, you look at the structure here. The prologue opens. Uh, the narrator comment seems to be for the first 11 verses. And then for the last handful of verses, everything in between is from Kohelet, um, the, <coughs> the preacher, the, the assembler. And so uh, we can generally look at these chapters uh, one and two deal with the search for meaning under the sun. And so the, the, it seems like an autobiography. This person whose, whose wisdom is, is um, being presented in, in Ecclesiastes uh, 1 through 12 is giving really an autobiography. Here's what I've done. 
I have pursued wisdom, I have pursued pleasure, I have pursued um, all uh, power, I have pursued all these things that he gets into, uh, searching, searching for meaning under the sun. Uh, there really, you, you may notice uh, if you've read this book, there's really not a comprehensive or intelligible structure. It just kind of jumps all over and he repeats and goes back to the same topic. And it's, it's, it's really just kind of all over the place, which again is kind of an invitation into his existential quagmire. Do you feel that tension in life? You can see it here and you see it there and you go back and you see that here and you see it in another area. And so we, uh, it, it, it's, it seems to replicate the human heart pretty well. It seems to be a nice print of those questions that we ask throughout our lives. Uh, and then there's another quest for meaning uh, with a different persona that starts in Ecclesiastes 3 that doesn't necessarily sound like the author of the first couple chapters. Um, so what some people will say who, who say that Solomon did not give these words of wisdom, they would say, well, whoever's writing this maybe was this grandson or great-grandson of Solomon kind of took on the Solomonic wisdom. Um, uh, how, how would I describe it? Uh, a sage personality and spoke like Solomon for some time and then uh, ended up reflecting m more honestly uh, from his own perspective. Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult uh, point to maintain, I think, uh, because uh, to, to, to assume that the author is personifying somebody else is troublesome. I'll just, I'll, I'll put it that way. So it's not the most convincing of arguments, but there is, there does seem to be a change in approach starting in chapter three, put it that way, Stephen. So yeah, you just said troublesome. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a lot of second temple literature that doesn't make it into the canon where the authors explicitly are taking on the persona of mm -hmm. other characters. Mm -hmm. they do not, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's right. Are, yep. Um, and so, I guess in this case, yeah, it, I, I would look at this and go like, yeah, maybe it is somebody who's writing from the perspective of Solomon, maybe with more historical perspective than Solomon had, but you're saying that that's kind of an issue. Um, and maybe that just reveals my own limited understanding of of a genre in that time. Um, but you're right, we have to be careful of the pseudepigraphal works where they were pretending to be people they weren't. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. It's, it, it, is, it is unclear uh, and it is, it is complicated uh, to, to say, to, to just summarize it in that way. Um, we know it was a son of David. We know it was a king in Jerusalem because that's that's what one one says. Um, so, I, I I'm not answering your question. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there continues in chapters six through eleven advice and instruction, and then chapter twelve reflections on death, which seems to be an appropriate conclusion to uh, how somebody might give their own autobiography. Is thinking then on death and the end. Okay. Um, you know the phrase vanity, vanities, or meaningless, depending on the translation. Everything is meaningless. That word, I think, I think the word meaningless is, is really unhelpful. Vanity is a little closer to the truth. The word is, is fleeting, and you see that as a footnote. It's like a mist. The word is mist. It's, it's here in a moment, it's gone in the, the next second. 
And so what, what this wise speaker is saying is all the treasures of the world and even your own life is like your breath when you see it in the cold in the next moment. It's gone. And, and it forces you then to come to terms with the bigger picture of what you're doing in your life. And so the vanity of vanities um, does not say that everything you do is purposeless. Uh, because we actually absolutely do have purpose as, as God's children and as um, uh, Christians on this earth. Uh, but it, it, it's also true that our lives are a mist. And we're here a mo- one moment and we're gone the next. And so that is, uh, that's helpful as you read through this book to realize that that word is speaking of the fact that it, life is fleeting. It's a vapor. And then the phrase under the sun, you've heard that also. It occurs uh, 28 times in 26 verses, and there are a couple other similar uh, constructions. And it implies life in general. It, it kind of implies specifically life in general in one way, but it also differentiates between man who lives under the sun and God who is above the sun and puts us in our place in relationship to God with, as Amy pointed out, very uh, Job-like themes. And uh, we'll approach the New Testament here, and then we'll, we're going to dive into some of these big questions that the book asks, and we'll look at uh, specific texts and how Christ fulfills them. Uh, but here's, here's how uh, Nancy Guthrie summarizes it. She says, What is needed is not more wisdom writing. This is based on the narrator's comments to his son at the very end when he says, you know, what, what Stephen amened, that um, wisdom itself can be a, the writing and philosophy and the, the endlessness of books can be a useless task in and of itself. Um, what she says then is, what is needed is not more wisdom writing, but we need the embodiment of God's wisdom. What is needed is a new kind of revelation, one that will enter into this life under the sun and thereby transform it. This book really is asking for there to be a solution to the wisdom question, and it comes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that embodiment of God's wisdom who transforms life under the sun and life beyond the sun. Uh, <clears throat> so it's, it's implicitly begging for a solution. This is a book that appealed to me as an, as a non-believer. Uh, when I was reading it as a non-believer, because um, having a meaning and purpose in life uh, was a void mm. for me. Mm-hmm. It was... You know, I just could see, I'm, you know, I'm in my 20s and I'm looking at things and I'm like, so we get married, we have kids so that they can get married and have kids. We mm-hmm. go to work so that they can get married and have kids. And yeah. and I'm like, what is the, mm-hmm. what, it just does. It seems like a, a vapor, a mm-hmm. mist. We're here today, we're going tomorrow. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. You think that you've got something new with the latest fashions or the latest uh, trends and stuff like that. You can keep track of all of that, but it's it has it's a it's it's gone like a vapor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're putting your trust in those things, you're gonna you're gonna be sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Minimally, yeah. Yeah, minimally. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I think we just solved the authorship question. I think. Uh, are you the author? I, I, are you the author? No. Okay. No. Okay. All right. I, really I did see a time machine in this garage. All right. What I'd like us to do is survey some of the big questions that um, Ecclesiastes raises and see how the answers are given, 
uh, and then see Christ's answer. I think it's important for us to realize that before Christ comes, before the fullness of revelation comes, the answers are good and right and true, but they're not the fullness. And so really, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, these questions that the book is asking cannot be fully answered without Christ. And so the answers that we see here are good and right, but they are not the fullness of God's revelation. And so let's, let, you'll be able to see the difference in the depth of the answers um, for those who have, for those who anticipate Christ and those who, like us, have seen Christ. So let's, let's, let's get into this. Um, one of the questions is, does anything last? And this we've, we've mentioned a couple times. And so the um, Kohelet, the, the wisdom speaker, right off the bat says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And that's the question that Andrew said you asked as well. And that is a question that can be answered uh, with confidence when we turn to the New Testament, where we're told that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And you may say, how does that question, how does that passage answer this question? Well, it's actually the same word in Romans 8 when it speaks of the futility to which creation has been subjected. Um, that futility in... Uh, verse 20, Romans eight twenty says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free. And so despite the futility, there is an answer that there, there will be freedom from bondage to corruption. And those who are in Christ and even creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And that comes, as we heard this morning, rooted entirely in the work of Christ and in the person of Christ in his resurrection, and his redemption that God has promised from the beginning, from Genesis 3. And now that you see it in its fullness, you can answer this question, does anything last? Yes, it does in the seed of the woman by whom creation will be freed from this futility. Does anything satisfy? Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Can you imagine Ecclesiastes 2.1 posted anywhere in our world today? I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And, and I point this one out because I think this is the... Um, maybe this is not the commentary on our culture. Maybe this is the commentary on my heart toward our culture uh, and in my, my own heart. Um, but... I, I do think this is a commentary on our culture, a culture that only wants to be satisfied, wants the feel goods and to move on. And flip over to Ecclesiastes 2. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting what all the preacher explored. I mean, you can summarize it with the word pleasure. Um, I, I like the title here in the ESV, The Vanity of Self-Indulgence. Um, skim down through that, uh, all of chapter two, and just kind of shout out some of the things that he explored 
to see if some of the things he gathered and found out were, were still vain. First of all, in verse 2 is laughter. Verse 3 is what? Wine. Wine. And folly. Mm-hmm. Wine and folly. Looking for something to make yourself happy. Yes. Something to just make you happy for a moment. Uh, verse 4. Success. Yeah, like the nicest house in the county. Like built amazing things. Planted vineyards for myself. Gardens and parks. And then you can, that continues on into verse 6. Pools. And I had slaves. And slaves who were born in my house. So so not just a, a short time. Like I This was... I had an extensive network of those who served me who were at my beck and call. Lots of herds and flocks, all these indications of wealth. More than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Keep going. Silver and gold. Yeah. Concubines. Yep. Silver and gold. Money and sex. The famous ones. Music even. Entertainers. Right there in his house. Whatever his heart desired in verse 10. And then he even turns to wisdom. What do you make of that? Wisdom from whom? Mm-hmm. Wisdom from whom? Now, verse 13 acknowledges, all right, yeah, it's, it's much better to live wisely than to live foolishly. But even that godless wisdom... And actually, we, in verse 5, there's, it's implicit. Even those who are godly and who live under God's commands and live wisely, that even is a mist and fleeting. Because even a, a life lived wisely is going to end. Of course, not in an eternal sense, but in an earthly sense, that under the sun, it is still just fleeting. Um, Verse 15, and I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Death is going to take the fool, the fool and the wise person. So why have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. Does that speak to um, Christ talking about um, feasting while the bridegroom is here? Like you have the Pharisees and hmm. others chastising the disciples, Jesus and the disciples mm-hmm. for the partying, basically. Um, and some might put that, like, the chastiser's behavior, or the chastiser's outlook as, like, wisdom. Like, why are you wasting all of this here and now? And Jesus' answer to that is, because I'm here. Hmm. Um, Can you ex- explain that connection to this passage? The, uh, um, the Kohelet says, well, why have I wasted all my time being so wise um, if both the fool and the wise person are going to perish? Mm. And so you have like Pharisees at all who are uh, the wise ones, mm. the ones saving mm. their money, the ones not running out to all of these banquets of the bridegroom that Jesus is holding. Um, mm-hmm. 
in that is kind of saying, like, uh, nobody is enjoying themselves or seeking pleasure in those moments for their own sake. It's because Jesus. So Jesus, even there, is the answer in that sense. Like, Jesus isn't saying, go out and party because it's fun, lighten up the Pharisees, you guys are sticks in the mud. He's saying, I'm here, I'm doing the thing that you all have been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Join me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, in that case, yeah, the, the wisdom of the Pharisees is falling flat, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think what Christ is doing is inviting them to feast on an eternal life. And with an eternal life, with a with a heavenly, uh, gracious gift and a, a perspective of of true lasting um, fulfillment and and purpose and and righteousness that is purely a gift. the The wisdom of the world is folly uh, to God, and and God's wisdom is folly to the world. And uh, perhaps that's what. The author is speaking here is, you know, you can, you can live as wisely as you want, as righteously as you want, but I don't think uh, anyone would call that true wisdom. Um, I do think, however, that you can live in true wisdom under the sun that still is fleeting. And I think that's what's going on here when you look at verse um, 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Under the sun, to live exclusively under the sun, even in good wisdom, uh, is fruitless. To live in godly wisdom while you're under the sun, but with the reality that you are living um, in relationship to God, and we're going to get to that that, uh, theme here of the relationship to God, that's where wisdom becomes useful. Um, Not as a means of salvation, but as a um, a growth in, wis- in in righteousness and in godliness. So, yeah, I think we have tangential ideas going on. And, and Christ, as the embodiment of true wisdom, uh, would, of course, put to shame any other pursuits of wisdom by any means besides him. I don't even know if I answered the question. It's, I just spoke around it. Everything that is, he's talking about, though, is earthly. Earthly wisdom, mm-hmm. earthly gain. Yes, that's tie. that's true. That's and, that's a helpful point. So there's no eternal perspective. Yeah, that's a helpful and point. At this weekend, we were with friends. Hopefully, you guys will do this in 25 years from now. The couples that we've been in community with for that long, and in this season of life, to go back to the birds, the birds. Um, so we're talking about things like. What are we doing now in ministry now that things have changed, now that you know, kids are out of the house, um, now that we're retiring? Um, but um, everybody, young or old, wants to see a result for their labors. We want to see a result for our labors in the kingdom, too. And we've come to the conclusion that because you throw uh, the fall in there, you throw sinfulness, you throw other people's um, lack of commitment or whatever it may be, lack of time, um, indecisiveness, unwillingness to commit right now, we may not see those results that we hope to see. And it boiled down to two things. 
God saying, do you trust me? And hopefully, maybe, we will see the results of our labor in heaven. You know, we were talking about, wouldn't it be great to be surprised by people that we don't even know that are kids or grandkids, maybe not even born yet, of people that we've talked with and invested in, given and shared biblical truths with, and they say, I'm here because of what you said to my grandfather, my grandmother, mm -hmm. 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Yeah. It keeps you keeps your mind focused on accumulating the right kind of treasure. Yeah. Where moth and rust and thieves do not destroy. Yeah, that's good. Um, Jesus, the, Jesus' answer to does anything satisfy is, of course, Jesus himself. In John 4, we find, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. You can drink any other water in this world and you will be thirsty again, but it is only drinking of Christ that will lead to satisfaction. And it's not just a satisfaction until you die. It's a satisfaction. It's an eternal satisfaction that begins now that is only going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And your fulfillment in Him and your joy in Him will never decrease for eternity. In fact, it will increase forever. I know it's hard for us to conceptualize that because we feel like there are limits to everything. Your delight and your satisfaction in Jesus will, there is no max. It will increase for eternity uh, because we drink of him and we will never be thirsty again. Um, and so all these things that Kohelet pursued, those are the things that we, for some reason, keep chasing in our hearts. Those are the things that unbelievers chase because they, they have promised great things. Um, but those are the things that will lead to thirst again and hunger again. And so, again, Kohelet is anticipating we need something that's not going to disappoint. And it's Jesus. Is anyone in control? So this is Ecclesiastes 3, the famous passage, a time to be born, a time to die. Time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, to kill and to heal, to break down and build up. And on and on and on. And uh, this, the point here is that God is the one, in verse 11, who has made everything beautiful. That word beautiful is suitable as well. He has made everything appropriate and good and beautiful and suitable in its time. God is the one who has done this. God is the one who is in control. And also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so um, we cannot on our own understand what in the world is going on uh, in God's design and in God's plan. And we try to figure it out and we try to be the ones who are in control, yet we realize uh, as Christians that... <laughs> We can't uphold the world. We can only trust in the one who can uphold the world and does uphold the world. And it's, it's Hebrews 1.3 that says, Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He just speaks his power over this world. Is there any comfort? Ecclesiastes 4 talks about, it says, and again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. And as soon as you get comfortable, those comforts fade and you become uncomfortable again and you need a greater comfort. 
And 2 Thessalonians 2 says, Jesus has given eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Uh, Only Christ is that source of comfort. Does anyone dare draw near? Ecclesiastes 5 talks about this relationship with God. This, uh, this, This is the first part of the book where it actually talks about a person being in a relationship, a give-and-take, two-way relationship with God. And it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, or excuse me, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words... You're a nobody. Be careful what you say around God. Do you have a right to draw near to God? No, none of us does. We can't come to him without coming by the mediator who has washed us clean. And Hebrews 4 talks about that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now we can dare draw near to the throne of God. We can now not just fearfully come, although we come with reverence and awe, we come joyfully and confidently. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, once again, this, this wisdom literature is anticipating we need a way to approach God and it comes only through Christ. And for a time, of course, it was um, given by the temple and by the sacrifices were just a foreshadow of Christ and his spirit, who was the sacrifice and the temple and the fullness of all those promises. And then let's look at the very end of the book. I know we've, we're skipping a lot here, and, and some of those questions that we're skipping uh, include, um, is anything gained by all this toil? Uh, is there any hope? These are in Ecclesiastes 6. Um, Is this all there is in Ecclesiastes 9? And then this question, does anything matter here in Ecclesiastes 12? The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So does what we do matter? Well, I'll go ahead and say for your your justification, no. No. But as Christians who live faithfully as justified people, yes. And we're told multiple times, Jesus himself says in Luke 6, your reward is great in heaven based on your deeds. 1 Corinthians 15, the famous verse says, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then in Philippians 1, 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So there is gain. There are things that matter. There is purpose to living. But I ask you, has any of us done Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14 perfectly? Have we feared God and kept his commandments? Have we done our whole duty? Is God going to bring every deed into judgment and find us flawless? No. Well, not on our own. But of course, when we stand in Christ, he will find every deed flawless. Isn't that unbelievable? That is the gospel. That's right. You look on him and pardon me. Um, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so when God brings judgment then on good and evil, um, he will bring our righteous judgment because of Christ. And so um, the question then is, well, do we go and just do whatever we want to do since we're going to be forgiven? Of course, that's the stereotypical question. The answer is no. Fear God and keep his commandments. There is value in that. It's obedience. What did you say? Yeah, that's right. By no means, Paul says, meganoita. By no means do we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound. There, it is beautiful and it is meaningful to fear God, to obey. And if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. And that is our whole duty. Any concluding thoughts on this before we sing our last song? Yes. I was like, probably could have shared this earlier, but I was like flipping through because I always, Ecclesiastes is really Books, mm-hmm. But I always, when I look at Ecclesiastes, it's always that book that I'm like, well, this is just depressing. But mm-hmm. there are like those little nuggets of truth in there. But I always refer it back to Psalm 39, which is a Psalm of David, that I think is like written very much in the same tone that Ecclesiastes is. But mm. there's like this string of like wisdom behind it too that actually points you to Christ. Yeah. Um, because Psalm 39 goes like, it's surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. He goes about as a shadow for nothing. We're in turmoil. But then it's like, and now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Mm. So it's like that ties everything together. And it clearly points out what is missing in Ecclesiastes mm. is that reflection on where is your hope? What what are we doing all this for? And there is still a purpose. And there's still mm-hmm. hope. So mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's really good. It's a great connection. Sure. Are there any other kings of Israel who were noted for their wisdom other than Solomon? Uh, not greater than Solomon, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the ones that I think of would be Josiah, Hezekiah. Um, but I, that, those are the only ones I can think of. No, it's, it's a good question. I've been wondering that too since you brought up the Solomon point. Well, I was looking at the end of <coughs> chapter 12. Uh, it says uh, in verse 10, The preacher uh, sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great here. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it may be, you know, as you said, the books weren't necessarily in the order they are now in ancient times. Um, but are the coupling of the Proverbs written by Solomon and then Ecclesiastes and then the Song of Solomon, those three together, is that a stronger indicator? Yeah, it, it, it could be, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm not at all trying to push back against a traditional understanding of authorship. I think it has to do with some specific texts that raise questions about, because I suppose that the end of Solomon's life is unknown. So how he didn't seem in in the end to to fear the Lord. So can he speak godly wisdom? Um, that, those are some of the questions that, that I've, I've come across. Um, I'd be glad to like open this up in just a couple minutes and look at it. And see see what some of these thoughts are, um, but it's yeah it's it's an interesting question. 
Uh, and it is interesting, to me what's interesting is that in biblical studies there are waves where different ideas are um, prominent. And this just may be a wave that is not a reliable wave. It very well could be Solomon. And that's, that's why I'm not willing to say it's not him. Um, it, but there are things to wrestle with no matter where you land on it. And so we'll look at those here in a minute. And if anybody else is interested, we can stay back and look at those. Okay. Let me pray, and then we'll sing uh, the handout. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would we uh, seek things that are above as we seek purpose? As we desire to be satisfied, would we seek nothing below heaven? We don't want to go anywhere if you don't go with us. We don't want to love anything if you don't love it. And uh, we don't want to live a life that you would not design your children to live. So would you help us to fear you and to obey your commands and to do so gratefully and to do so with hope because of Jesus? And would we realize as we so often repeat, would it not get old for us to hear, to realize that our righteousness and our salvation are gifts from Jesus? Would that be what uh, keeps us encouraged? And would that be the thing that reminds us of our purpose and our destination? And would it remind us that this does matter? And that inheritance that we have, that we heard about this morning in First Peter, is not fleeting. It is not vanity. And it serves to your glory. And would we do the same in how we live under the sun until that day that Christ returns? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.